It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. All right, I'm riled up today, giving everybody fair warning. I am really upset. Now, by the time we get to the kicker, I think I'll be in the mood to laugh again. But it starts with the death of Henry Kissinger at the age of 100, just announced today. Now, Kissinger, to be sure, as Richard Nixon's Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, he had both jobs at the same time, one at State, one at the White House, never been done before or since, had a very mixed record. He was deeply, deeply involved in the Vietnam War. There are taped conversations with Nixon that later came out that were embarrassing. I'm not one of these people who thinks that when a major public figure dies who was during his prime, um, just the subject of, he was just a divisive figure. And I don't think that that should be in any way whitewashed or covered up. But then I look at the Huffington Post, the liberal Huff Post, and there's a screaming headline World War III size type, the Beltway Butcher, war criminal Kissinger, dead at 100. And I'm thinking, this guy hasn't been in office in 50 years, and they're still fighting this battle. Now, to the extent that Henry Kissinger... uh, was called a war criminal. He was never formally found to be one. You know, the, a lot of that had to do with the secret bombing of Cambodia while we were engaged in the Vietnam War. But in everything he did, Kissinger was carrying out the orders of President Nixon. Secretary of State doesn't get to decide whether there should be bombing or not. He might have recommended it. But it was Nixon's policy. And by the way, he Kissinger did some good things. He's the one who quietly negotiated with the Chinese and restored diplomatic relations, or helped Nixon do that, before 1972, we only recognized Taiwan. We know embassy in Beijing. We wanted to send a message to China, it had to be through a third party. Now, the relationship today is not so good, but you can't blame Henry for that. It's also funny because, you know, this uh, guy with the thick German accent who said uh, right before the 72 election, peace is at hand. Um, also, was something of a playboy, dated women who look like models. Um, but again, you want to write a, you know, your main news piece and saying, you know, he was divisive. A lot of people thought he prolonged the Vietnam War. Um, he did this, that, and the other thing. That's fine, but then you have to recognize that the guy did some good things. I mean, yes, he remained a figure, even though he just started a consulting firm, was consulted by various uh, later presidents, including, I saw footage of him today, with Barack Obama. So... I'm not saying this because, oh, he died, his family, whatever. I'm saying it because 
you know, even a modicum of good journalism would be to show that Henry Kissinger had a very mixed record. Now, the other reason I'm all riled up and trying not to use any uh, curse words has to do with story number one. You know, when the uh, when the Gaza hostages first started to be released by Hamas, you know, it's a happy story, leaving aside the other parts of it, which I'll get to in a second, and just so you're up on the news, Israel and Hamas have agreed to one more day of the military pause, and that's today. Now, is it possible they could extend it beyond this? Yeah, but it sounded like things are falling apart, especially since Hamas's first offer was, we'll return seven more hostages instead of ten. Oh, and three dead hostages, whose deaths they're going to blame on bombing by Israel. But who knows? Maybe Hamas killed them. So now what's coming out, and there's a terrific... Uh, well-reported and absolutely heartbreaking story in the New York Times about how these hostages were treated. And it's not that I put any of this past Hamas, which has no regard for human life, which delights in killing Jews, but Hamas's plan from the start was to use those it kidnapped, including the very old and the very young, as bargaining chips to get concessions from Israel, which is exactly what has happened, because so far, this is now the seventh day of the pause. It originally was supposed to last only four days, but the more hostages are returned, the more Israel's been willing to go along with it. But of course, that gives the Hamas terrorists an, an advantage because its military can regroup, uh, because you know rockets and other weapons can be moved, and on and on. But listen to this time story. Some of the hostages were held in sweltering tunnels deep beneath Gaza, while others were squeezed into tight quarters with strangers or confined in isolation. They were children forced to appear in hostage videos and others forced to watch gruesome footage of Hamas's October 7th terrorist attack. They bore physical and psychological wounds. This is sick. This is appalling. This is just beyond despicable. Especially since Hamas must have known it would release many of these hostages at a future date and then the whole world would find out how badly they were mistreated. I'm not surprised that Hamas would do anything. But you would think they would want to get credit for releasing hostages in good health. And the way the Times got this story, because obviously many of these hostages haven't spoken publicly, most of them, I don't think any of them have spoken publicly, because they're deeply, deeply traumatized, is by speaking to their families, to relatives who have been told by their loved ones, now out of captivity after a month and a half. Um, many have come home malnourished, infested with lice, ill, injured. You know, of course, about four-year-old Abigail Eden, first American hostage to be released. 
after her parents were killed. Well, an aunt says that Abigail, who turned four just a couple days before being released, said her niece shared one piece of pita bread per day with four other captives and did not have a shower or a bath in 50 days in captivity. This is starvation. She was, I mean, I understand that Hamas was not, I mean, the Hamas themselves, the terrorists, they had plenty to eat. A lot of Palestinians in Gaza did not have plenty to eat. But that is starvation level. I mean, it's lucky she's still alive. First thing that she told the relatives when she was released is how hungry she was. Okay, here's a 79-year-old woman, Nurit Cooper. She was held in the tunnels, like many of the hostages, with four older Israelis in the early days of the war. They were kept in a small room with little light or ventilation, according to her son. Nurit Cooper's shoulder was broken as part of the brutality of the kidnapping. 79-year-old woman. And all of the hostages who were in their 70s or 80s struggled to walk in these dark, sandy tunnels. It, it just... I would say it's unfathomable, except we have all learned, the world has learned, that the unthinkable is quite thinkable when it comes to the Hamas terrorists. Now, as far as whether the ceasefire will be extended anymore, I have the feeling that maybe there aren't that many more hostages to be turned over until you start getting to the men and the soldiers. But some of Bibi Netanyahu's government don't want this extended anymore. They want to get back to war. Every day that goes by, it's more difficult, both for reasons of public opinion and just for reasons of military strategy for Israel to restart the war. So uh, the National Security Minister, Inamar Ben-Gavir, who's far to the right, because Bibi had to take some far-right members to get reelected as part of his coalition, he just came out and said it yesterday that if Israel did not continue its war with Hamas, his political faction would just leave the coalition. Stopping the war equals breaking apart the government, said the national security minister. Now that alone wouldn't topple Bibi's government, but he'd have a very slim majority remaining. Now Netanyahu responded by saying the war will continue, which he said all along. There is no situation, says Netanyahu, in which we do not go back to fighting until the end. This is my policy. The entire security cabinet is behind it. The entire government is behind it. The soldiers are behind it. The people are behind it. This is exactly what we will do. Well, the entire government is not behind it, obviously. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. In a remarkable speech on the Senate floor, the majority leader, Chuck Schumer, spoke about the rise of anti-Semitism. Schumer, uh, described here by Politico as the highest-ranking Jewish official 
in U.S. history. I guess there's never been a congressional leader who has been Jewish until uh, Chuck got elected. He was originally a congressman from a district in southern Brooklyn that has a sizable Jewish population. And, you know, Chuck's been around so long that you just, you know, everybody knows he's Jewish, but you just, you think of him in terms of the Democratic leader, you know, fighting these battles. Okay, here's what he said. No matter what our beliefs are, no matter where we stand on the war in Gaza, all of us must condemn anti-Semitism with full-throated clarity whenever we see it, before it metastasizes into something either worse. Because right now, that's what Jewish Americans fear most. He went on to say this is no intellectual exercise for us. For many Jewish people, it feels like a matter of survival, informed once again by history. In this case, very personal history to me. The history of our trauma, going back many generations, is central to any discussion about our future. When Jewish people hear chants like, from the river to the sea founding slogan of Hamas, a terrorist group that's not shy about their goal to eradicate the Jewish people in Israel and around the globe. We are alarmed. So he's including himself in all of this, personal to me. He asked that young Americans reject the illogical and anti-Semitic double standard that is once again being applied to the plight of Jewish victims and hostages and even to the very existence of a Jewish state. That's what the senator had to say. Um, in the other war, the one, of course, that grinds on in Ukraine, Washington Post columnist Mark Thiessen says the following, and he is very much in favor of military aid to both Ukraine and Israel. And by the way, neither, neither has happened as Schumer tries to navigate that through Congress and with a very divided Republican Party. Okay, here is the best-kept secret about U.S. military aid to Ukraine. Most of the money is being spent here in the United States. That's right. Funds that lawmakers approve to arm Ukraine are not going directly to Ukraine, but being used stateside to build new weapons or to replace weapons sent to Kiev from U.S. stockpiles. Of the $68 billion in military-related assistance, since the Russian invasion, almost 90% is going to Americans. But, he writes, you wouldn't know that from the actions of some U.S. lawmakers when Republican Senator J.D. Vance joined the UAW picket line in October in Toledo. He said he wanted to show some support for the UAW workers in his state, yet he has not shown the same solidarity with the UAW workers in Lima, Ohio, who are churning out Abrams tanks, and striker combat vehicles for Ukraine, thanks to the military aid that Congress has approved. And I didn't realize those were the numbers. You could say it's creating American jobs, and that most of the money is being spent here, but clearly for the benefit of Ukraine, and that is Thiessen's point. All right, Elon Musk, story number two. Elon Musk even on relatively slow news days, always manages to bail us out because he's always making news. The other day it was his visit to Israel to try to tamp down the uproar over him embracing an anti-Semitic tweet. Conspiracy theory about Jewish communities pushing hatred 
against white people, despite the fact that many Jews are white people. All right, so at the New York Times Deal Book Summit, he was interviewed by Andrew Ross Sorkin. He was asked about the tweet. I have no problem being hated, said Musk, smiling. I have no doubt that's true, by the way. Um, But he apologized for, he admitted his post was possibly the worst, those are his words, the worst he had ever published. Essentially, I handed a loaded gun to the people who hate me. He also said going to Israel was not an apology tour, but he said, I am quite sorry. I should, in retrospect, not have replied to that particular post. What would have been great, Elon, is if you had said that the next day, rather than allowing this to linger. And of course, all these top corporate advertisers bailing, the Washington Post is the latest. When asked about the exodus of advertisers, remember, this is a pretty uh, fancy pants crowd, to use an old-fashioned phrase. Musk said, I hope they stop. Don't advertise. Sorkin, you don't want them to advertise? What do you mean? No, he said. If someone's going to try and blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go F yourself. Go F yourself. Is that clear? I would say it is pretty clear. I would also say that if advertisers have been bailing on X in the wake of Musk's own tweet, which he now says was the worst he's ever put up, which he now says, I am quite sorry. I should not have replied to that particular post. Can you blame some of these companies with not, for not wanting to be associated with this social media giant? Musk should be conciliatory and hope that his words would convince some to come back. He's obviously angry. He thinks this is all organized. Remember, he sued media matters. But just to be dropping F-bombs about the advertisers, I don't see where this helps him at all. I mean, Twitter is now worth less than half of what it was, maybe far less than half, when Musk bought it. Surely he would like to salvage it as a business. And going the FU route, I don't think gets it done. All right, story three. This is um, an interesting turn of events. You know, when Kevin McCarthy was ousted as speaker, and remember, Jim Jordan tried to be elected speaker, Steve Scalise tried to be elected speaker, Tom Emmer tried to be elected speaker, and then we wound up with a guy who even many journalists were not familiar with, Mike Johnson. Well, now Politico says and nobody can fall off their chair over this, that Mike Johnson's edging closer to the same sort of clash with conservatives that helped bring down Kevin McCarthy. But Mike Johnson is very conservative, and that's why it's an interesting story. So Politico says that when Johnson met yesterday with Republican senators... Uh, that created a storm that's threatening to end what's left of his honeymoon running the House. That was a quick honeymoon in political terms. On his right flank, some members are already asking behind closed doors whether Johnson might meet the same fate 
as McCarthy. Though other lawmakers see that speculation as bluster. Johnson has antagonized conservatives most acutely by engaging in policy talks with fellow leaders rather than pushing exclusively for base-pleasing wins that won't survive in the Senate. In other words, he's trying to govern. He is talking to the other body. He is talking, presumably, with Democrats in an effort to get things done. I often have the feeling that the Freedom Caucus is so intent on slashing government spending, and they have every right to do that, except the deal was already made with McCarthy last spring. But in any event, that they'd rather get nothing done. So, a reminder with the very slim majority that first Kevin and now Mike have, um, it only takes a few members to really complicate his life. So, he showcased his willingness to stand up to conservatives when he went to the Senate. He delivered two messages. One, he would call up an extension of government funding through the end of the fiscal year. That means till next September 30th. That's how it runs. If lawmakers can't reach a deal. Now remember, he said he previously avoided a government shutdown with just the stopgap measure, band-aid, so to speak, um, of pushing it off until January and February, two different tracks for different agencies. Now he's saying we could go a whole year or almost a year. Well, look, it's today's the last day of November. If, if Mike Johnson had to do this, it would be until the first day of October of 2024. Yeah, that'd play well one month before the election. And that he wants to see much of the House's conservative border bill as part of any potential Senate agreement to aid Ukraine. Well, that's just normal congressional negotiating. He says he wants to provide military aid to Ukraine. A lot of Republicans don't, or at least have severe hesitation. And so he's like, you want this? Then you have to add this. I mean, this happens every day on the Hill. Now, it isn't that he said anything dramatically different than what he said before, but man, a lot of conservative Republicans in the House not happy. Here's Max Miller. He continues to play games. We're talking about a man who 30 days ago said he was an anti-CR guy. CR is continuing resolution, which is Capitol Hill jargon for a bill, any bill, that just continues spending at the same level because Congress can't agree, which also happened, has happened very often in the past 30 years, you name it. So this guy Miller, who's an ally of Kevin McCarthy and of Donald Trump, called Johnson a joke, describing the Speaker's decision to attach IRS cuts to Israel aid, a slap in the face to every Jew, and... An effing dumb choice. Everybody's dropping F-bombs today, huh? It set a precedent of tying domestic policy to foreign aid. Not the first time it's happened. Chip Roy, the guy who gave that speech, who's on the House floor, the Republican who said, show me one thing, one thing Republicans have accomplished. 
he described Mike Johnson's performance rating as plummeting. Okay, so the Speaker's office says Johnson's views haven't changed. He'll continue fighting to stop the flow of illegal immigrants, excuse me, illegal migrants, and illicit drugs through our wide-open southern border, demand accountability for any aid to Ukraine, and ensure that Section 702, I mean, they can't help themselves. How many people in America know what Section 702 is? It's a foreign intelligence law. Is reformed to prevent abuses from ever occurring again. Now, let me get one other thing in here. I think this is my only Trump item of the day. I do have a column on Donald Trump on foxnews.com about his threats against MSNBC. I talked about it yesterday on the podcast. In this column, I talk about how Trump makes news Sometimes, whether he wants to or not, gets dragged into various controversies. Sometimes he puts these things on on Truth Social, and the media don't pick it up. They kind of ignore it. He has to either do an interview or be on video, for television at least, to want to do anything. And look, I mean, he's at war with the media right now. And so they are, many of them are not, in, many of the outlets, I should say, are not inclined to Give him a platform. But here's what happened. Uh, Donald Trump apparently read a Wall Street Journal editorial about Obamacare. So now, yesterday, there's a, a new column in the journal, Biden, Trump, and Obamacare. Subtitle, Democrats distort the issue, but the GOP offers no alternative. Um, now, this kind of praised the good parts of Obamacare, extending coverage to millions, and its flaws, increased costs, profit to private insurers, in the opinion of the journal. Quite a long distance, by the way, from the Tea Party rallies of uh, 2010 that insisted that Obamacare would immediately lead to an economic depression. So, Look, obviously Obamacare is still somewhat controversial. It is significantly more popular now than it was when it was passed under President Obama. And it's kind of become, you know, part of the fabric. And by the way, Donald Trump had four years to get rid of it and could not do it. And that's, um, so that leads to a posting from the former president about getting much better health care than Obamacare for the American people will be a priority of the Trump administration. It is not a matter of cost, it is a matter of health. America will have one of the best health care plans anywhere in the world. Right now it has one of the worst. I don't want to terminate Obamacare, I want to replace it with much better health care. Obamacare sucks. Three exclamation points. Okay, but back to the journal. Recall that Republicans failed to repeal and replace Obamacare in 2017, despite controlling both houses of Congress because they didn't have anything that could win a majority. John McCain's opposition ultimately killed the GOP's last reform bill, but Trump's unwillingness to understand the policy arguments was the bigger problem. So the Biden campaign considers this just a gift from the gods. They would love to run on protecting Obamacare, given that millions of people depend on it. They would love to remind people 
that Donald Trump in four years as president couldn't get it done. Um, it's not one of those issues like inflation where Joe and company are constantly on the defensive. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, now um, we get into some more politics. Story number four. I don't know if there's ultimately anything to this, but it is striking that Mark Cuban, who I've interviewed a few times, who's a very smart guy, owner of the Dallas Mavericks NBA team, well, there's new speculation that he might run for president. Guy's got a zillion dollars. Because he sold his majority stake in the basketball team. Somehow he will still run it, but he won't be the majority owner. Uh, he uh, is selling it to the Las Vegas figure, Miriam Adelson, the widow of Sheldon Adelson. Cuban bought the team in 2000 for $285 million and has reportedly sold his majority stake for more than $3 billion. I'd say that's a pretty good investment. And again, he will retain operational control, but he'll be $3 billion richer. Also, he's leaving the show Shark Tank, which he's been on for years and years. Next season, he says, will be his last season. So, Sports Illustrated and the Dallas Morning News are saying, speculating, pontificating about the fact that Cuban could be paving the way for a presidential campaign. He's a fixture on cable news. And clearly believes he is qualified to be president. Successful businessman. But in the past, Cuban has said he doesn't want to put his family through it, telling NBC, my family would disown me. But would the family disown him now? Look, I don't know if anything's going to come of this, but it does seem odd that Cuban is making all these moves having to do with his money and his television career right now. But if he is going to run for president, you know, which requires getting on ballots and so forth, uh, he'd better pull the trigger pretty soon. In Politico, Rich Lowry of National Review basically says Chris Christie should drop out of the race. Sometimes nothing is harder than giving up an idea whose time is never going to arrive. And Lowry says he's an admirer of Chris Christie. That it gives me no pleasure to say this. He's a gifted communicator and compelling persona who was a good governor of his state who says important and true things about Trump. But the Christie theory of the case was that he'd take it to Trump hammer and tongs in the debates, that his honesty would be refreshing to Republican voters, and he'd consolidate the non-Trump vote. But that hasn't happened in two of the three debates. Republicans thought Christie performed the worst. In the third debate, 24% thought he performed worst, slightly better than Vivek Ramaswamy. Now, at the beginning of the year, it was possible to see Christie's unvarnished attacks on Trump accruing to his benefit. But if Christie had been right, then Ron DeSantis wouldn't be able to consolidate the non-MAGA vote. 
problem for him is that Nikki Haley has swooped in and begun to do it herself. Perhaps Christie could have been an alternative to DeSantis. There's not much of a case to him for him as an alternative to Haley. So Christie basically has bet his candidacy on New Hampshire. But if Trump wins Iowa, Nikki Haley might get a boost if she finishes a surprise second. In that case, why would Christie try to blunt her momentum in New Hampshire? Basic argument here is Christie does have a following. I think he's at 9 or 11%, depending on the poll in New Hampshire. If most of that vote, obviously not Trump fans, went to Nikki Haley, she wouldn't necessarily win the New Hampshire primary, but she could do much better than expected. In other words, for the good of those who believe that Donald Trump does not deserve another term, Christie should quit. But, as we've talked about before, Ron DeSantis is not going to quit, Nikki Haley is not going to quit, and it does not look like Chris Christie will quit, at least until after the New Hampshire primary, but things could change. Now, here's the kicker I promised you. It comes from The Hollywood Reporter. It's about ABC's The Bachelor franchise, of which I am less than knowledgeable. I think I once watched The Bachelor for 10 minutes or something. But there's also a spinoff called The Golden Bachelor. And they brought on a a guy named Gary Turner, 72 years old, big hit on the show, Uh, genuine depth and sensitivity. The women liked him. He's a widower. His wife, Tony, they were married for 43 years. She died of an infection right after they moved to their dream retirement home. And he's talked about this on the program. He says, I mean, I haven't dated in 45 years. But the Hollywood Reporter found out, well, that's not quite accurate. This, is, this calls for a special prosecutor, I am sure. While the audience never learned about these discrepancies, uh, Geary didn't tell him the truth or didn't own up to the truth. He came to know a woman, the, the Hollywood Reporter is calling her Carolyn, I guess not to out her, with whom he would go on to have, after his wife's death, a nearly three-year relationship, beginning innocently enough a month after his wife's death. Attractive, 14 years his junior. She was a staff accountant at the mental health center. They dated for 10 months, then lived together for one year and nine months. This is drawn from interviews with Carolyn, who asked not to be named to protect her privacy, as well as friends she confided in at the time and text messages with Gary. Now look, the fact that he dated this woman, fine. You know, he was single, he was a widower, not cheating on anybody. But that's now how he portrayed himself on The Golden Bachelor. Isn't this outrageous, a reality show that doesn't give you all the facts. I can hardly believe it. Maybe I'll tune in next week just to see uh, what the action is all about. Hey, thanks for sticking with me. As I never tire of saying, this is a very enjoyable exercise for me and I hope for you. In fact, I'll even come back here tomorrow and do it again with more BuzzMeter. 
Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 